This is episode 216 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing Women's Camp 2018, Unfettered from Fear to Freedom. This is the workshop, Your Story Matters in Ministry, from Diana Jans. Thank you so much. We had a little technical glitch, so we're not going to have these slides today. I'm just going to talk real fast. So if you want to come see the slides, because what we what we do, what I try to do with slides is just enhance what I'm saying, not just have all the verbiage up there. So, but unfortunately, it's going to take some of the visual away. But just in my diet, just visualize what's happening. Imagine it's 1958. I just stepped off the school bus at Frozen Junior High. I'm wearing my brand new black and white saddle shoes My somewhat flared purple skirt, a crisp white blouse, and my casual sweater. My hair is long and blonde, and I'm a chicken, and everybody knows me, and they smile and they say hi. And as I walk in the door and yell, hi, who wants to talk to me? Almost everything you just imagined with me didn't happen. What really happened that morning in 1950 is this. I wasn't wearing saddle shoes, no filter skirt for me, no cashmere sweater for me because my family couldn't afford to buy such things that other girls had. I did have long blonde hair and I was a junior, but that morning as I got off the bus, not one person spoke to me. They stared at me whispering as I went in the door. As I walked down the halls, it was a Moses event part of the Red Sea, but this time it was the students that were crying so that I could walk down the hallway. What happened? I had no idea. I went to class. No one spoke to me. Next class, the same. Then during the break, I went to the cafeteria and a fellow student by the name Mary walked up to me and she said, everybody knows. Everybody knows what? The stomach started to hurt. She said, Everybody knows that you had sex with Adam, it's your fault. And I managed to, I didn't do that. And I literally said, My father's a pastor, I wouldn't do something like that. She looked at me and she said, Oh, yes, you did. And she walked away. I felt like I'd been punched in the stomach. I almost fainted. I managed, like I say, to, keep, to stand up, but just barely. And at lunchtime, I found out that his rocker, and he too turned around and walked away. After school, I went home. I crawled into my bed, and apart from getting out to get a drink of water and maybe a bite to eat, to use the bathroom, I didn't get out of bed for a whole week. I told my mom I was sick and I wasn't going to school, and she didn't ask any questions. As I lay in my bed, I thought about what had gotten me into this time in, in history, in my history. Well, it all began pretty innocently. Al started flirting with me, but soon he tried to sweet talk me into having sex with him. And I was like, no, I'm not interested. Not only did he have a girlfriend, his girlfriend was the most popular girl in school, and I was really nice messing with that. But then he became an assistant. And I still said, no, I'm not interested. And then him being an upperclassman, a bully. He became aggressive, manipulative, and worse than that, he began to threaten me. I didn't do exactly what he wanted me to do. He was going to do, and he just figured out what he was going to do. And to this day, I'm still not sure what he said that convinced my then 13-year-old brain that the only answer I could give him was a yes. But I was afraid. I was afraid if I told that I would be the one that would be in trouble. And more than anything, I was afraid that he was going to carry through with his steps. By the time that fateful day in 1958 happened, the abuse had been going on for some months, and as I lay there in bed, I considered taking my life. I thought of running away from becoming a prostitute because I thought that's all I'm here for. Remember, this was all for the 50s. In the end, I decided that no matter what, I really didn't want to live. I thought if I run away, the police may get me, and they bring me back home, and then they force me to go to school. So I had to get out of bed, pull my head up high, my shoulders back, and go to school, even if nobody was going to speak to me the rest of that school year. And I tell you this story for a number of reasons. Reason one 
Life's happiness. I'm no longer a teenager. Inside, I'm still 12, I'm still 13, I'm still 14. And all the ages that I've ever been, as long as I live, I will always remember what it was like to be forced to be bullied into doing something I never wanted to do. And for the rest of my life, I'll know what it was like to be wrongly judged, to be scorned, to be just ridiculed and talked about. And even though I am healed from my past, my future will forever be colored by my past. And to be honest, that isn't necessarily bad. If I had known at that time what I was doing was bullying, by his bullying and regrets and actions was really wrong, and that I wouldn't be the one in trouble, my story would be completely different. But think about this. I probably wouldn't be here standing 60 years later talking to you babies. I probably wouldn't have started a nonprofit. That is a nonprofit to help women who have our survivors of sex trafficking and those who are sexually traumatized. I doubt it. Reason number two, I was not sex trafficked. But as I thought about my story recently, there were so many similarities. And if there would have been a predator in my life that would have come and talked to me, I would have been found. Reason number three. What you do with what happens to you is way more important than what actually happens. And that doesn't excuse anyone of any sort of abuse. We all know that abuse, bullying, and someone and using someone else for real pain is not a under any circumstances. And some of you may have experienced similar things to what happened to me, and maybe worse. Maybe some of you are experiencing some abuse right now. I don't know. But we all have our story, and because of what happened to me as a child and a teen, I then ended up marrying an abusive husband. My abusive husband was actually a pastor. We were missionaries in Europe. In certain circles, we were well known. And at our worst moment, he pummeled me in my stomach when I was pregnant, and I ended up in the hospital losing my child. People most often want to know why. Why do you do what you do? Crazy. And I am, admittedly. <laughs> but why do you do what you do? And it's because of this. It's not in spite of it. It's not, you know, God just decided. No, it's because of this. I am the founder and president of Hope Bunch Minister. Now, our mission is to come alongside the survivors of sex trafficking and to assist, assist them in any way possible. We bring awareness to educate, to make a difference, and we are here to disrupt sex trafficking in Oregon. And I don't know if it's something that you know very much about, but it is very much alive and thriving in our communities. I don't care how small the community is. So today I'm going to tell you a little bit about sex trafficking, what we do at Hope Ranch, and how you can make a difference in protecting the vulnerable amongst you, and how God can use your story in spite of your story. Baptist, this is a Conservative Baptist family. Oh, okay. So you're not necessarily from Baptist churches. I just wondered if anybody here has been around long enough to know who Ben Jans is. He used to be a pastor, Conservative Baptist pastor, actually. That's my father. He's long gone now. He actually retired when he was 91 years old from preaching. So I'm trying to get through this kind of 
So nine years ago, I knew almost nothing about sex trafficking. I thought it was in some other country, somebody else's children that was not my problem. Then I saw a documentary about young women being brought into our country, young women and girls that I had, being brought into our country through the purpose of sex trafficking. I still thought these are not my problem. About that time, my life as I knew it completely exploded. I did lose my parents. I lost other important people to me through death and through suicide. I ended up in a hospital and almost lost my own body. And in the course of the year it took me to regain my health, I lost my sources of income, I lost my marriage, I lost my my savings, and I had to sell personal possessions to pay bills and my dog died. I am a Canadian, and at that time I thought, I'm just going to go back to Canada and just lick my wounds. Some of you may wonder why I'm not headed that way now, but I love the U.S. and, and I love being here. But I was there about just a month or so, and I thought, this is not where I'm supposed to be. And so I came back to the U.S. after I'd been there for about six months, and I decided to go visit my children in California. And while there, I stopped in Springfield, a friend of mine, and she said, if you're going down there, you've got to go to the LA Greenside. So I did. When she told me what it was about, and when I went there, I knew I had to go volunteer there. I thought they had sweet floors, clean toilets, and I really didn't care. My purpose in going there was really to learn to be a servant, and really to, to learn to know God in a more intimate and better way. And so I went, and much to my surprise, they put me on the floor for survivors of sex trafficking. I didn't even know they had such a floor. And that's where it was, much to my amazement. There was only one girl there from another country, not really important, they're equally as important, but what at that time in my brain, they somehow weren't. But what I saw was that there was only one girl that was from another country, all the rest were from the US. After being there about a month, I sat down across the table from this young woman who was telling me her story. She was an American citizen, and at about the age of five, her parents first sold her to a John for him to have sex with her. And at 10, they sold her to a pimp, to a trafficker, and she was under his control for about the next 10, 15 years. And as I sat there and listened to her story, I just was staring at her because I didn't want to miss one single nuance of one emotion or one little part of her story. And suddenly as I was looking at her and staring into her eyes, I saw her little girl eyes. I saw her five-year-old eyes. And still after, that was in 2010, and still after all these years, right? Because of her and her eyes and the other eyes that I see on the world, and they're telling me their stories. I could not but do something because of it. God literally took everything away from me so I could. And we don't all have the same, we don't all do the same thing, God doesn't call us all to do the same thing. But because of where it was in my life, he could. We all can do our part, whatever we or little. But those eyes were begging me, begging me to do something to make pain go away. And I'll be okay with that. So Bradley Miles, who's in, um, I think he's the president of the Paris Project, it's a popular event at DC. And they have actually a hotline that some of you may have even seen advertised around. But he said that there's three buckets of human trafficking. One is for kids under 18 who have been forced into the commercial sex trade. And then we have those under 18, over 18, who have been coerced through violence and through other ways of being trafficked. And then everyone else that's working against the world. And today I'm only going to briefly address the first two buckets. So by definition, sex trafficking is a way to exploit people. People are sold and bought and traded like slaves. It occurs when someone uses force, fraud, or coercion to cause a commercial sex act. And what's a commercial sex act? It includes prostitution, pornography, and any sexual performance given in exchange 
for anything like food, for lodging, drugs, shelter, clothing, anything that they exchanged for sex. <laughs> really simply put, it means one person is using another person for their own thing. And the FBI has a crime uh, reporting program, and they've only been taking the statistics for sex trafficking since 2013. And so the statistics out there are very often very accurate. They are, to me, I think mean, they're always way lower. The estimates are than what's really going on, but I'm going to give you a few statistics. So worldwide, and including labor trafficking, human trafficking is $150 billion industry. That is more than five times the total income of Starbucks, Nike, and Google combined. And trafficking really can occur anywhere. It's in our cities, in our towns, neighborhoods, our schools, our group homes, our shelters, malls, parks. On social networking, a victim can be trafficked and never even leave their own home or their family or their community. In the United States, sex trafficking is second only to drugs. And more and more gangs, more and more predators are becoming involved in human trafficking because they're not as likely to be prosecuted. They're not as likely to be caught because you can hide things. Most things are over the internet. You don't have the drugs carrying with you that you think you used against you. And additionally, of course, a victim can be used over and over and over again. Both females and males are trafficked. The male entry into sex trafficking is between 11 and 13, and for girls, it's 12 and 14. An estimated 100 to 300,000 United States children are recruited into sex trafficking every single year. And numbers, like I say, are really difficult to find, but just to put it a little bit in perspective, 300,000 is approximately three super gold football stadiums full if they're playing at that life stadiums. You know how many people that is? That's a lot of people in our country. So regardless of the number of victims, the numbers are increasing in the U.S. every year. Abolitionists face a growing problem. It's not getting smaller. But more important than the big picture are the victims being served at the time. And we are helping, when we're helping a trafficking victim, the most important person is the one. What if it was your child? What if it was your son? What if it was your sister? Wouldn't it make all the difference in the world? And I believe these are our children. These are our brothers and sisters. The FBI states that the average life expectancy of a child went to prostitution was seven years. And that happens through drugs, through suicide, through murder, through sleep deprivation, extreme stress, severe physical and mental abuse. And so the population of sexually exploited people is not because you think they would be everywhere where they but it's because they don't last very long. So there are lots of different pathways to enter, for them to enter the life, and believe it or not, in Lane County, we're no longer Lane County here, are we? But in Lane County, a parole officer told me that about probably half of the clients that she had that have been trafficked by their parents for drugs. At least these speechless too. So if it's happening in Eugene in Springfield, it might be happening where you live. Youth who are already under the influence of a trafficker go to school and there they recruit their friends. You have no idea how many girls I have spoken to who have been trafficked. And literally, it's their friends who pull them in. Hey, I've got this cool guy. He'll buy you food, he'll buy you clothes, he'll do this for you. And they're gone. A survivor from Junction City gave sex to a custodian in exchange so that she could have someone to sleep. And so, a very common scenario in our country is when a man poses as a girl, as a boyfriend, and slowly begins to young girls and ages. Any of you heard of Rebecca Bender? She's, uh, she actually was traveling out of Eugene. She met the trafficker in a coffee shop. And she is now an adolescent, and she speaks all over the world, but she's a survivor 
um, that she was doing amazing things. That's what he did to her. He met her. She had a, a young girl. She was a single mom, and he just dined and wine and dined on her, and eventually convinced her to move to Vegas with him. False advertising happens. The kids, teenagers, are looking for a job. And so it might look innocent, like modeling or dancing, but once there, the job description, of course, changes to the sounds to be true. It is. And kidnapping does happen. Not a lot, but I actually know of two or three people in Eugene that have actually been kidnapped by traffickers. As we've already mentioned, boys are helping as well. This is something that many people don't know because boys will not identify. Um, they don't want to because of their body stigma of being made homosexual. And there have been estimates that it could be as high as 35% of all traffic victims in the U.S. are male. And a young homeless girl in Eugene said to me, the boys are way more traumatized by what's happening to them sexually than the girls are. So one out of three children in the U.S. who run away are approached by a trafficker within the boys in the house. Because they're hanging out where the kids run to. Again, Eugene, it's by the library, it's by the bus station, it's the wild hall. It's at new little parties. And they do play and they go to the baby and offer them shelter, they offer them food, they offer them a hamburger, cheeseburger. In gangs, like I think I've already said, they're increasingly turning to selling people over drugs because it's safer. And foster kids, and God bless foster parents. I know it's very, very difficult, but foster kids are often treated like objects. And listen to these statistics. 65% of fosters are homeless at the point that they age out. 50% are incarcerated within two years of aging out. 80% of death row inmates are fosters. 50 to 90% of traffic children are fosters. Tragically, only one to two percent are ever arrested. The remainder of their mom's runaways trouble with personal opinion. And that to me makes it extremely clear that what we have to do is prevention. And that's part of a lot of what we're about. Because if we can prevent, if we can instead of standing at the bottom of a cliff with ambulances and band-aids and crutches and everything else. We put a barricade at the top of the so people on home are not But not long ago, I sat across the table from a young woman. She looked angelic, really. She had long copper hair, just shiny, and she had no makeup on. And she, tears started coming to her eyes, and she said, I was only 13 when I started, when I started selling myself. And it didn't take long for the pips to take advantage of her vulnerability. And this is a young woman who spent all her life in Eugene. That day she was talking to me and she said in the moment of great clarity, I felt like I was losing a piece of my soul each and every time I was used. These are not just statistics. These are real people. And they matter, all of them. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but I know that there's been many times when in past when I would be in judgment of people I would see on the street. Maybe they had all kinds of tattoos, maybe all kinds of piercings. I actually see them as badges of, of courage now because it's their way of mitigating some of the pain that they're feeling inside. And I used to be so critical of them, so judgmental. And a lot of people say that, wow, a girl when she's 18 and she's making up her decision, she's making her own decision, she's deciding to be a prostitute. The truth is that. She wasn't just starting at 18, she probably started at 12, and maybe she was abused when she was a little girl. So I think it's time for us as a, as a citizens of this country to really understand that there is some hurting, there's some hurting broken people here. I used to sit in the church with tears running down my eyes. I was being abused by the very person that was out there preaching. And so I know some of you are in situations where you wonder, what am I going to do next? How am I going to, how am I going to get some help? If there is help, let's move along. An FBI agent asked a trafficker where he found girls. And the trafficker told him 
I graze the moths, I look for a girl alone, I walk up to her, and I look her in the eyes and I say you have beautiful eyes. If she looks at me and says thank you, I walk away. If she goes me, he says I've got her. So I do not ever teach people to walk in beauty because you don't have to. If you teach your children that they are loved and that they are valuable to stand up straight and to say back off and to say thank you and then walk away, kids don't want them. Traffickers don't want people that are self-aware and that know when to say no and to back off and to know where to go and who they are. But that's the most important thing that we can do for all the young people that are in our lives is to get so many information and to still some self-esteem and self-belief into them. So there are no numerous traffic quarters in the U.S. and they actually go along the main thoroughfares like I thought. And that's one reason why we do have so many problems in Salem, Eugene, and all over Portland. It's because we are on the right side. So I want you to do something for me. Can you all stand, please? And we do it. And I shake something for an hour a day and I could talk to you and I had ulterior motives to know that I could lead some of you down some paths that you didn't want to go down. We're like that with humans. We are followers. According to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, 33% of victims are trafficked by someone they know, someone they trust. 90% of abusers are known to their victims. And it's because they trust them. It's because they believe that someone they trust will not leave them wrong. Did anybody here not stand up on purpose? I bet next time when somebody tells you that, you might think about it twice and why? Because you're now aware, you're now educated, right? And that's why it's so important to give prevention education into our churches, into our schools, to teach the parents what to look for. I can't tell you how many parents have called me and they're, they're just in a panic saying, I believe my daughter's being trafficked, this and this is happening. And I say, you're right. But unfortunately, just like my parents didn't notice what was going on with me, we often don't notice until it's too late. And what do we do with kids that are acting out teenagers? We take things away. We ground them, and not that those things shouldn't happen because there has to be standards and rules. But do you understand what I'm saying? If someone would have come to me instead and said, What's going on in your life? Why are you doing this? Because one thing I do is I started wearing copious amounts of makeup. Just one little sign, but the signs are always there if you're aware and if you're watching. So I have explained to you how innocent children can be tempted, and here's some things that you can do. No relationships with the people around you, with the kids, with the youth, with your neighbors, or people in church. Because if you have a relationship with them, then you can ask them questions. And it builds confidence. And confidence isn't, isn't something that you have to wake up and pretend. But even if you just see some young child doing something, you really know what you say. That was amazing what you just did for whatever it is. And she knows what to do, he knows what to look for, they're not going to fall victim. There's a great um, website, it's called Safely Ever After, and I believe it's either 10 or 20 ways to protect your children, it's Safely Ever After. 
I believe is a word, but it could be calm. So teach them what to look for. And there's not a young lady that I don't work with the said about all the movie what to look for. So everybody's looking this one is the police officer told me this. He says, be nosy. And be nosy parent, be a nosy neighbor, be a nosy aunt, whatever. Just be nosy. Ask questions. And these are some of the questions you can ask if you build that relationship. Where'd you get the money for your school clothes? Who's your boyfriend? Why was he angry? Where did you meet him? We missed you yesterday. Where were you? Just ask normal questions that you care about someone. And if you can establish their beliefs and see if somebody's taking advantage of them, then you can do something about it. Maybe you can take notes and collaborate with someone else that knows that child. It can make all the difference. And then, if needed, tell somebody, report to somebody, ask somebody what to do. So it didn't take very long for me to understand when I realized the huge problem that I had to do something to mitigate the horrors of trafficking. And my life as I knew it was gone, frankly. And I mean, at the time, trust me, I was suicidal. I was weeping lots and lots of tears, but now I can say, you know what, I thank God. It's all good. It really, really is because he brought me to a place where I never would have been if he hadn't taken everything from me. I don't wish that on any of you, but sometimes if if you're going through a lot of a lot of problems, this is what I ask people. If you really have a lot of stuff going on in your life and it just seems like, God, when is this ever going to end? I ask people this question: Did you recently, maybe in the last six months or a year, say, God, I really want everything that you have for me? And that's your problem. And you can just start thanking God that, hey, he's taking me there, wherever it is you wanted to go. But we have been a nonprofit since 2011, and it really has been extremely rewarding to see the community at EUG and Springfield and then Kelly just stepping up and coming alongside survivors and making a difference. So Scott Benji, who's a sergeant on the Egypt Police Department, he works with victims and he prosecutes traffickers. He says the work is hidden in plain sight. And it is. And that's why it's important to do awareness training. Because if you know what to look for, you'll see it. If you train your brain, because what your brain doesn't know, your eyes don't see. Because I could probably take you to some places where you really might say, that looks suspicious. Or maybe you could tell me a story about some teenager you know. I say, those are signs, those are red flags. And that training is available. But it goes on much more than you would ever want to imagine. So one of the very first things we did as Whole Ranch was we began a Lane County Against Trafficking and Task Force. And if you're on Facebook at all, we're there. Lane County Against Trafficking. And our mission is to bring awareness to the community and to support organizations who are working with trafficking youth. And we do awareness trainings, like I've already said. We do them on a regular basis. In fact, if some of you want to come down to Eugene, we're having the next Saturday. And if you go to Lane County Against Trafficking or Hopeland Ministries on Facebook, we have all the all the particulars there. So earlier this year, one of our, our uh, trainings, we actually had two former traffickers. We had some survivors, and I wish you could see this picture because I have a picture of, of the dude who was the trafficker, and next to him is his now wife who he used to traffic, and, the, and their baby. And it's just been amazing, because this guy first went to prison um, for drugs, because he was selling drugs. He said, in prison is where he learned how to be a pimp. That's where he was taught from other pimps that were in prison. And so when he got out of prison, that's exactly what he did. And then he eventually, after some years of trafficking young women, he got put back in prison because he was a trafficker. But in trafficker, he in prison, he was put in solitary confinement. And guess who he got there? Jesus Christ. And it was like, Jesus, but that's enough. You're going to change. And this man got out of prison. He's been out a few years now. He has a church in Portland. He preaches on the streets of Portland. Like, just they go out on Sundays or whenever they go out. And he actually has a huge ministry to 
people who have been traffickers to pimps. And there's, I've been one of them, but we've been praying for years that God would raise up ex pimps to reach the other pimps. I can't reach them. It's got to be men, it's got to be pimps that do that. So praise God because so much good is happening. And uh, hopefully, I'll have the picture up where people can see tomorrow. It's just amazing the story of redemption of what God can do with somebody who think, yeah, it's, it's useless. Give up. So every month, we also participate in a vigil that happens by the end of the month. And our goal, we carry signs. We often, people will stop by, survivors will tell us the stories. Yes, I was traveling. Thank you for what you're doing. But our goal is to have that whole street just full of people saying, you know what, no more. This is enough. Stop. So I, the gentleman that started it all, his daughter was actually trafficked. She worked at Valley River Center. He's um, a school, actually a counselor in a school district in Eugene, and his daughter was trafficked out of um, the mall. We also have presence at the UFO football games. We um, have walks downtown in Eugene. We um, go anywhere, like I say, any sporting events. We just are a presence there. Uh, we've taught classes at the UFO, Lane, we do service clubs, churches, anywhere where anybody will listen, we go. Anybody that will invite us. And then you can't see these pictures, but then there's the survivors. You're the reason why we do everything. And one of the one of the first young ladies that I work with, her name is Mackenzie. Mackenzie Gambaro, and just the story of how I met her. I got a call on my phone that hadn't been working all day, and somebody called us through. After this call goes through my phone, again, we didn't work. But somebody called me and they said, hey, we have a young survivor in your team. Is there any way you think you can help her? And I said, haven't you ever reached me? He said, well, the place where she's staying, they called somebody in Washington who called somebody else who called somebody important who knew who they called me. I think, only God. So that was like in 2012, I believe. And so she, I went and picked her up, and she was coming off down off of heroin. She was on, I don't know what all kinds of drugs she was on, I, I even forget. But she looked horrible. And I remember talking to her, and I found out she had a warrant out from the rest. She was like 15 years old. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I said, if you, you have to turn yourself in, because if I harbor you, you're going to be open. I was locked up. And so, I kept her for a few days, just tried to help her a little bit, talk to her, and tell her that she's got to go turn herself in. She said, I will. I thought, I will never see that girl again. She said, I've got to go take care of a few things. Does that sound familiar? But I um, I just kept praying for her. And one minute, I went even to the places where she told me that she used to hang out um, on the streets in Eugene, because that's where she was living. And so I went to these places. I couldn't find her. And then I said, God, just. Helping to find her, and then I got a call to fix. And it was from her parole officer, and she said, Would you like to be in Mackenzie's life? Well, yes, would I? And so she was actually locked up for a whole year. I went back and forth to where she was. She came to my house, um, I, you know, on passes, and eventually she came to live with me for about two years. And she's, she's now at least six years out, and she's doing well. And I have a picture here of her. Her and her oldest daughter. So God does redeem, and that's what He's in the, in the really the business of. And another woman that we very affectionately called Grace and Mary because she was just off the wall. I thought there's no hope for this girl. She had been trafficked in California, and I met her down there. And she came and lived with me, and she got you know got pregnant, and all these things happening. It got in a miraculous way just changed her life and now she's been reconnected with her family. She lives in Florida and she's just doing really, really well. So it's just it's just amazing life. And I've learned that we're not their savior. They're not our projects. And all we can do is supply the tools and God has to do the work. Because if we do it, then we have to keep doing it. But if God does it, then it's different and it's permanent and it's great. So guys are trying too. We really hadn't had many guys around until recently I got a call from a boy, Kyle, in the Valleys. 
He came from North Carolina and he found us on the internet through our website. And he told me that he had just come from a safe house and came out here to fight fires for us during this season. And he is so, has such severe PTSD because one of the things that used against him was they actually would shoot at him and they also tried to kill him um, by shooting at him. And so he was completely terrified of this 27 year old man following me around the 4th of July, actually weeping because he was so traumatized by the fireworks. But God has begun to open that avenue for us too because that is one of our goals. Because so many men, boys, haven't traveled and there's almost no beds available for them in the US. And recently, I discovered that in Springfield, there's this group of ladies who, when they were younger, they're doing working. They've been trafficked on the streets of Springfield, and many of them are still living on the streets. And now they're in their 40s, and their falling, their bodies are falling apart. And so there was a young, a woman, not young, but a woman who used to be homeless with them, and who was also trafficked, who connected me with them. So now we started the Tea Time Ladies. And every week we get together, we bring them clothes. They often, they wear their clothing until basically they're so dirty or torn, they, then they just throw them out and then they have to have new, new clothes. So we're bringing them clothes, we're making them some good things to eat. And last week was pretty amazing because there was a young lady who had been coming and she eventually opened up to us and said, in this horribly abusive uh, relationship that we were in, we were in, she was in, with her little girl, we were able to get her a bus ticket and send her to her sister's house in, I believe it's in Oklahoma. And I just heard today that she got there safely. So us just doing amazing things, opening doors, and really our vision at Hope Ranch is to increase our ability to house survivors. We only have a small place right now, but we also have what we call out clients. We work with like, this young man who we connected to different um, things in Springfield and different tools. So our hope really is to bring healing and change to victims of survivors. So how I wish I would have been a little bit aware of the Americans of the but let me tell you the rest of the story. After staying in my bed for a whole week, I did go back to school. But the truth is, nobody spoke to me. People ignored me. It was like I wasn't there. They talked about me. I was isolated and very lonely. And so when Al called again, this later, I went back. I went back because I felt like I had nobody else. And this time I went back and I said, I'm doing it because I hated my parents, because they weren't protecting me. I hated my schoolmates because they were ignoring me and shunning me. And so I thought I'm doing it because I hate everybody and I'm going to show them. And that continued for some, for some months. And over the summer and into the fall, just three really important things happened all within a few weeks that completely changed the outcome of my life. One day when I was with Al, I heard an audible voice. As clear as I speak of you today in that moment, I actually looked around and thought, who's here? And the voice called my name and said, and I knew then when I called my name, who it was, he said, you are only hurting yourself. In my heart, in that moment, I knew that he was speaking the absolute truth. And I got up from where I was, I left, and I was never ever again without, even though he harassed me for three more years, I never went back. And that gave me the strength, that voice, to stand up and to say, no. About a week later, a teacher made an appointment to meet with me. And she sat me down and she said, I know something is going on with you. You act different, you look different, your grades have really plummeted from a year ago. I'm not going to go into your business. And she said, I'm going to tell you something that I'm not supposed to tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway, and she did. And what she told me is one of the reasons why I also had the guts to say no to Al, to stand up and study whatever was happening in school. And later that week, one of the most well-liked, popular, beautiful, full of fun, gregarious, amazing classmates walked up to me and she said, 
let's be friends. And I looked at her and I thought, are you crazy? You want to be my friend? And she said, yeah, I want to be your friend. We're still really, really good friends to this day. I tell her she saved my life, but she says I saved hers. It was amazing what God brought into my life to take me. And what I've learned through working with survivors is that God is in the midst of even the worst trouble. There's hardly a survivor that I've never ever met that hasn't said, God spoke to me. The only reason why I'm alive is because God helped me. He saved me. And he makes beauty out of all. And hardly ever a day, day goes by that God doesn't use something from my past. And I could stand here for hours and hours and tell you a little bit I've told you about my life. It's only a tiny little bit. I could stand here for hours and tell you all the crazy things that have happened to me and that God has allowed in my life. But do you know that not hardly a day goes by that I don't think of some of those things and I think, oh, that's why I need to learn that. Because I would be completely different than some of these young ladies if I hadn't gone through some of the hard times that I had. I wouldn't be able to do it. So God uses events to get me to a place where I would say, even if my life never changed, that I would trust Him and that I would follow Him and that I would be able. So in her book, Your Scars Are Beautiful to God, and maybe some of you have read it by Sharon James, she encourages us to raise our scars and to allow God to use them in the lives of others. She says God prompted her, prompted her to write the book after reading the Holy Scripture passage of after the resurrection of Jesus. Because when Jesus appeared to the disciples, did they recognize him at first? He had to show them his scars. And so God allows us to have scars because that's how Jesus is still recognized through our scars. Jesus could have healed his scars. And he could take it all away from us so we could allow God to have it, but he chooses not to do it. Because that is where we find the ministry when we get back to him. Ours are important to him. So each of us can reveal, I know that without a doubt. But the question Jesus posed to the man in John 5 was what? You really want to get well? You understand what that means? You'd have to let go of your chains. You'd have to let go of the prison that you created and the identity that you created. When I was coming through some of my healing, I actually was um, had a psychiatrist that I went to. I mean, I was in trouble. Um, I was going to a psychiatrist. He hardly ever said a word, but one day he looked at me and he said, "You are responsible for everything that happens to you." And I was actually angry at him. I was angry at him for a whole month and I thought, how dare he? I'm a victim. And he needs to feel sorry for me. And he needs to rather and I was angry. And then one day I woke up and I thought, oh my goodness, if I'm responsible for everything that happens to me, then I can change it. And through God, and through his mercy and through his grace, I was healed from my past. And he did change me, he did change me, he did use all of those things. So if we allow God to replace our wounds with scars, and we are willing to use them to help others, he will redeem our most painful experiences. And then as James writes in your book, Satan wants to use our past to paralyze us. God wants to use our past to propel us. And the choice is ours. It's yours. It was mine, and I said yes. The only thing I have left to say is I love Christ so incredibly. And one of the reasons why He allows pain into our lives is because He loves us. I know that might be hard for some of you to hear. There's a book that was written by a woman who was trafficked. And she said, it's called Punish for Purpose. She had unbelievable horrible things happen to her. But she became healed and one day God said to her, I allowed it because you would never be healing me, but you would be now because I have been taking you through those things. 
that's true. God loves us so much that he allowed them. Never doubt that he loves you, no matter what happens to you. And even if your life is filled with pain the rest of your life, God still loves you. And you can still say to him, I will trust you. I will obey you no matter what happens. And that's the place where God wants to bring us to. It's just complete holiness and submission before him. Just yes. So say this. You know it's not a one-time thing. Because there's days when I get up and I think, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I just say yes. I have to say yes Because we're human. We fall. We get cold. And often when I look that way, God will bring something into my life. Okay, just get it together. God is still in control. And He is. We have the horriblest things that are going on in this world. And part of the reason why we're so stressed is because we feel like we can't do anything about it. But God is in control. And I don't know why I keep saying this, but maybe somebody here needs to hear it. God is in control. Rest in him. And give him your story. Give him your life. Give him your views. Your hang ups. And I, I say that you, at whatever age I am, you figure out when I'm looking at I believe that God, especially, wants to take us older people. And to make a revolution, if you will, to help some of these young, desperate kids on our streets these days, the homeless, the people that need help, we can make a difference.